want to welcome you. My name is Tony. If you're new or visiting, checking us out, uh, I have the privilege of serving here as lead pastor. Uh, if you are uh, a kid or a teenager, I'm going to invite you to stay for a minute. Usually we'll dismiss right now, but you're going to hang out for a few minutes because one of the things we're going to do uh, is we're in the second week of Advent. Now, if you're not used to Advent, uh, Advent is one of the ways each week that we mark the passage of time as we move up to Christmas. This is the second week of Advent, and so I want to invite uh, Aaron and Cheyenne and their kids, Sienna and Kaysen, to come up. Maybe give them a little round of applause. And as they're coming up, they're going to light the candles for us. Each week, uh, historically, the candles have represented different things. The second week is called the Bethlehem candle. It reminds us that Jesus uh, was not born in a palace. He was born in a humble place among the poor. So they're going to light last. That's the for week one candle. And on the other side, they'll li- light uh, the Bethlehem candle, which also represents love. Um, and then as they light those two, we're going to just say a prayer together. Dear Father, on this week of Advent, we rejoice in your great love for us. You demonstrated your love by sending your only Son into the world that we might live through him. In these last days of Advent, help us experience your love fully, embrace your love completely, and share your love abundantly. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Amen. Thank you, guys. So if you are a person in elementary school, you're going to go hang out with, I think Mr. Jim is back there. You're going to go that way. If you're in middle school or high school, uh, I think I see some high schoolers hanging out over there. Aaron's over there, Hanson. Feel free to go hang out with them. It'll be way more fun, I promise. All right, so if you're an adult and you're still with me and you haven't absconded uh, to go with the kids, uh, we're going to continue in our journey through the book of John. So we're in chapter 7. If you remember, it's the fall. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And what we see is Jesus has made a pilgrimage from... Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem. It's about 84 miles. It's like walking from Wellspring to Mountain View on foot via the 101, right? So it's a decent little trek, takes a bit of time. Now, what we see is this feast is called Tabernacle Sukkot. There are three primary pilgrimage festivals in ancient Israel. You have uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And one of the things that's interesting about these, right, is Passover happens in the spring, Pentecost happens in the summer, Sukkot, Tabernacles happens in the fall. So what you have is you actually have the greatest turnout in the fall because all the day laborers uh, can now attend. They're not in the middle of harvest. So you have this huge group of people gathering. Now, it's a time when they remember their travels through the wilderness, Right, so they build these shelters. If you were here a number of weeks ago, we actually had a, a little tabernacle, a shelter, a booth on the stage. And what they would do is they would build these shelters and live in them for seven days as a way of saying that God is their true shelter. 
Now, if you recall, Jesus shows up on the first day of Tabernacles, but he doesn't speak until the fourth day. He talks a little bit, uh, and then it's on the seventh day that we last left him. The context here, if you remember, is the priests would gather water on the seventh day from the pool of Siloam, and they'd walk from the pool all the way over to the altar, and they would pour the water over the altar, and it was kind of like this procession, and everyone would be watching them. And it's in the midst of this ceremony when the priest is pouring over the altar and everyone is spell, you know, just sort of gazed, gazing at the priest, totally into it. Jesus stands up and says this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Right? So you have this procession, you have the water pouring He says this, and this is where our text picks up today. This is how it goes. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, oh, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus who had gone, gone, gosh, I'm struggling this morning, huh? Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So I think we need to step back for a second to get a little bit of the sense of like, why do they react this way? Right? It's like, whoa, chill out. Like, what is going on? But I think if we step back and appreciate the historical arc that has led to this moment, start to appreciate, oh, maybe their reactivity kind of makes sense. So it's been 400 years since the last prophet has spoken in Israel. Right? Malachi is the last. Now we're at the first century. That's 400 years ago. And they've had a lot of time to think about What does it look like for the Messiah, the anointed one, God's kingdom, who's going to bring in, ushering God's kingdom? What is it going to look like when he comes? They've been exiled. They're out of Babylon. They're out of uh, Assyria. Now they're back in the promised land, but they're still ruled by Rome. And they've been thinking over the last 400 years, okay, let's get all of our dots in a row. Let's make sure we understand what it's going to look like so that we don't miss it. Right? So they've been holding on to these promises for a long time. They have this very clear understanding of what it is going to look like when God comes. So, back to the text, when some people are like, OMG, oh my God, how cool, the Messiah is here. And others of them are trying to like shut them down. We get it. Right? Because Micah 5.1 says, hey, their Messiah is going to come out of Galilee, right? The ruler of Israel is going to come out of Galilee, or is it going to come out of Bethlehem? Obviously, 
this can't be the guy. Right? They're very clear. Hey, this is where he's going to come from. They have their checklist. They're checking it twice, right? They're ready. They seem to not get the memo that Jesus actually is born in Bethlehem, but they presume because he spends so much time in Galilee that he's actually from there. Now, one of the things that's interesting, though, is there's not one point in the book of John. We're at chapter 7, so we've been at this since May. Do you notice there's not one time in the book of John when asked, you know, who are you? Jesus says, hey, look, I'm from Bethlehem. Do you ever notice that? He never says, look at my credentials. I'm from Bethlehem. You just need to look at my birth certificate. He never once says that. Instead, he points to a deeper truth. He says this. This is an example from uh, John 5, 36 to 37. For the works that the Father has sent, has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. Jesus doesn't point to Bethlehem. He points to his origin in the Father. Right? John is consistently talking about this. Where does Jesus come from? He comes from the Father. He does what the Father says. But the Pharisees, the leaders, they're so caught up in their own checklist, they miss the deeper meaning of who Jesus is and what he brings. Then in verse 45, you have this interesting twist, right? We learn that there's these officers who've been sent to arrest Jesus, but they come back empty-handed. And the officers are like, dude, why didn't you arrest him? They're kind of mad. And they see the guys that are like, we've never seen anyone speak this way. It's pretty interesting, right? They see something in him that attracts them. They wonder, they hesitate. But then, right, the Pharisees jump in. They're like, in verse 47, have you also been deceived? I once, uh, when I was first starting seminary, you know, like any good first-year seminarian, I was incredibly arrogant. And um, my mom went to this uh, seminar up at Berkeley, and there was a theologian up there, and she heard this theory on Genesis 2 and 3, and she came in just in a lot of humility, like, hey, I heard this thing. Uh, what do you think about it? And I was like, I had never heard it. So I just like took my arsenal out and just shot like a hundred holes through it. And I was not very kind. And then, you know, two years later, I read the book written by that person who spoke at Berkeley that Sunday and was like, oh, I think that person's right. <laughs> I never told my mom, but... But the point being, right, we develop these systems, these ways of looking at the world, and then we sort of take it and we're like, this obviously can't be true. And I think the Pharisees are doing something like that, right? They're actually using the law, even a faithful posture towards the law, to undermine the actual presence and work of God among them. One of the things that's interesting, though, is you have these officers. They're clearly not as educated. They're sort of like, oh, yes, sir. Okay, sorry, you know. Then you have Nicodemus speak up. Now, if you remember, uh, so in verse 50, he comes up here. But if you remember, he's from chapter 3. Do you remember his conversation with Jesus? He's a Pharisee. He comes at night to visit Jesus. Jesus has some pretty interesting things to say. In verse 5, he says this to Nicodemus during their little night rendezvous. He says this. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. 
You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born in the Spirit. Now, if you go back to chapter 3, you realize Nicodemus is totally confused. He's like, well, sorry, Jesus, but if you understand human biology, like this sort of re-entering the womb thing doesn't work, right? He's totally thrown off. He doesn't get it. And then in verse 16, Jesus says a pretty uh, well-known statement to Nicodemus. He says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So Jesus says these comments to Nicodemus three or four chapters ago. And then we don't hear from Nicodemus. But it's interesting, right? In this moment, when the other religious leaders are like shutting things down with their sort of checklist saying, hey, you should, are you, are you, are you deceived? Do you even understand the law? Nicodemus is like, "Uh, clearly been marinating, clearly been wondering about these statements that Jesus says. So then he says this, which seems like a pretty reasonable comment. Verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So clearly for four chapters, he's been thinking about, all right, I don't totally get what you're up to, Jesus, but I'm curious. And then he says this, seems like a reasonable response, right? And then like sort of me in front of my mom with my little learning, shutting her, her idea down. They're like, are you from Galilee too? Search and see. The Messiah doesn't come out of Galilee. Right? Not only are their facts wrong, which is kind of interesting, Right? Jesus is actually born in Bethlehem, but their hearts aren't really open to what God might be doing in the world. Which then kind of brings me, right, at the end of our text for today and into the present moment. So what does it then look like for us to take this text seriously? What does it look like in the midst of Advent to take seriously the questions raised in this scripture? So one gets the sense, right, from this scripture that the Jewish leaders they have a pretty well-developed theology, a pretty well-developed understanding of what does it mean to, uh, ways that God is going to work in the world. But because of those boxes that they have, they actually limit the surprising presence of God in the first century. Right? They dismiss, dismiss the people's response. They dismiss the officers wondering. And they even dismiss Nicodemus's questions. And I think my question for us today is maybe whether we do something even a little bit similar. Now, we're not sort of hyper-focused on how the Messiah is going to come. At least that's my read on this body. We're not like uber sort of hyper-focused on, okay, how exactly is this going to all work out? In the first century, they expected the Messiah to come. I think for some of us, we're not even expecting God to show up in the midst of everyday life. I think some of us live with this sort of tacit assumption shaped by our culture that God is kind of like this big watchmaker in the sky. He builds creation. He sets it going. And God does his thing and we do ours. God has his plan. We have ours. We try and be good people. 
But in one way or another, there's kind of, we live with this tacit assumption that there's this separation between God up there and us down here trying to make ends meet, raise our kids, go to school, whatever. And my worry is that just as the Pharisees in the first century missed Jesus' first coming, we are going to miss all the ways that God wants to surprise us with his presence in everyday life. This week I was reading uh, an epistle, a letter that uh, St. Bernard wrote, not the dog, the one after whom dogs are named. Uh, he said this thing, he said, there's actually three advents. There's the first advent when Jesus shows up on the scene. There's the final advent when God will come again. But there's all these little micro advents that happen throughout, you know, between those two bookends when God tries to show up in surprising ways in everyday life. But I think sometimes we can miss those little moments when we are focused on how we're going to do our life, independent of God coming into the everydayness of our lives. There's one practice that I think is actually super helpful at addressing this. It's called the examine. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. It's a practice that I've done and I think is an awesome Advent practice. There's basically two components. You wake up in the morning and you just take a moment and you say, okay, God, just invite you to surprise me with your presence today. Please show up. And at the end of the day, you circle back and you just look at your day and say, okay, God, how did you show up today? And it's a way of sort of breaking down that barrier that we put between ourselves and God. Like we are the ones that are all about doing life here. And God set the watch. He set creation and he's sort of, you know, sitting up there watching. But really it comes down to us. I think this is one of those good ways of breaking down that barrier of the ways God shows up. So we invite him in the morning to show up. And then at night we look back. And as I've done this, I found two things. One it is amazing to me in the busyness of life how distracted I get from God's presence and how often actually God is present that I don't even see it unless I give myself this space to reflect and look back and be like, all right, God, where were you today? Two, I realized in life, I feel like it's easy to get discouraged. One of the things I've realized doing this prayer is I end up finding myself way more grateful because I look back at the end of the day and I'm like, whoa, now, that actually was a really beautiful moment. That actually was a really encouraging moment that if I'm not sort of attentive to it, I'll end up going through the day, going to the next day, and they all bleed together, and I never have these moments of being like, whoa, that was actually a real blessing that God showed up. So that's the exam, and that's one way is that like in the dailiness of life, we can attune our hearts so that we're shaped for Jesus' arrival at Christmas, right? This everyday way in which God breaks into our lives. But I think there's also a way in which in Advent, we're trying to prepare ourselves not just for the everyday arrivals, but for Jesus's future coming King, arriving unto creation. But the thing is, we live in a world that's defined by YOLO. You guys know that term? You only live once. Uh, and I think that there's this particular dynamic that we're sort of living in, where our entire culture is focused on YOLO, right? You only live once. Drink the best coffee. Don't settle for cheap coffee. You need a $5 Americano, right? Don't just hang out in your place. Travel the world. Go on vacation. 
do all these things, rock it, flourish, live. And truthfully, there's a lot of awesome stuff in there. The same with FOMO, the fear of missing out, right? There's so much going on in life. We don't want to miss it, right? Because if you do enough stuff and enough of it is really cool, then your life is cool, right? That's just sort of how we think. But I think there's a way in which when we settle for that being the end-all, be-all in life, that we miss out on huge parts of our faith and huge parts of our hope. When we settle for life here, when we settle for YOLO, we miss out on the eternal perspectives of God's kingdom. We miss out on the fact that God is the one bringing the kingdom and that the kingdom minus the king is not really the kingdom at all. And I guess it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder how, when we live in this yo-yo, YOLO reality, it's kind of yo-yo-ish too, isn't it? When we live in this reality, actually how our formation happens. Because one of the things, right, our future hopes and expectations shape how we live in the present. So for me, so I applied to get into the Big Sur Marathon, and I got in, right? So it's in five months. So I realized I should probably start running now. Because if I show up at the marathon and I have not run, I am going to be wildly out of shape for a marathon. But I think sometimes for us, we sort of disconnect our present behavior with the future king in the kingdom. And don't we want to be the kind of people whose lives are shaped in the image of the kingdom and not our culture? Because I think if we do, right, if our future hope informs our present reality, I guess my question to us, to you, to me today is, would we live differently? Right? If our life was not centered on vacation, was not centered on getting the accolades at work, was not centered on $5 coffees, but was more shaped and defined by the coming king and his kingdom, you know, what would we do differently? What tweaks would you make in the everydayness of your life so that you were shaped and deformed into Jesus' image and not just the image of our culture? I guess lastly, uh, one of my questions is along this line that I think Nicodemus raises. So one of the things about sort of making our lives and ourselves more open to the surprising, surprising presence of God, making ourselves shaped by the coming king, is it's going to require us to make some changes in everyday life, right? But there's some resistance there because it's inconvenient, isn't it? Nicodemus says, though, to the Pharisees, hey, why don't we just listen to what Jesus might have to say? Why don't we actually look at his life and allow it to inform how we live? And I think my Advent question for us is along these lines. What does it look like for us to listen and hear the voice of Jesus shaping who we are during Advent so that we are formed and shaped into Jesus' image? But Jesus invites the other Pharisees and those gathers to at least listen to what Jesus has to say. Right, last week, I invited us all during Advent because Advent is a kind of a time when we allow our doubts, our disappointments, our disenchantment, all those things, worries, fears, to come to the fore. 
right? Because we're waiting for the coming kingdom. We're assuming it's not here today. So we're creating space for God to be present to us in the midst of our worry, fear, disappointment, all that stuff. What if in that, and I invited us last week to take just 10 minutes a day, just take 10 minutes a day, just to be honest in the presence of God. What if we also in the midst of that time took a little moment or two to listen to how God might speak into our everydayness? Not simply accepting us where we are, but speaking into, hey, these are the ways I want to surprisingly show up in your life. And this is what I want you to do so that you're shaped and formed by the coming kingdom, not simply marathon training. What if we created a couple minutes in the day where we could be shaped by the speaking voice of God? Right, Nicodemus, he says to the Pharisees, hey, just slow down a bit. Like you guys have your agenda, you have your thing. Can you just slow down and listen to his words? And it's clear to me as I read the text that like those words are really inconvenient to the Pharisees. It affects their power. It affects the way they've structured their lives. It affects the way they've structured their reality, right? If they take Jesus seriously, maybe it's going to undermine some of the good thing they got going on. And I think for us, if we're honest, Advent has this potential to kind of challenge some of the ways we've structured life. Whether it's defined by YOLO, FOMO, or something else. And I guess my Advent invitation to you is, will you actually listen to the speaking voice of God? Creating space so that your heart is shaped for Jesus' arrival at Christmas. Allowing God to speak into the way you structure your life, maybe a little more based on what is going on right now than God's coming kingdom. A little more based on the assumption that God is separate and not going to do anything versus an expectation that, no, maybe God could show up at any moment. And I guess I just wonder what it would look like if we just took a little time to slow down into the presence of God. I think one of the best ways to do that actually is just by celebrating communion together. That's what I'm going to do now. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, the day before he was crucified, he was hanging at a table uh, with his friends. They were present to him, he was present to them, and he grabbed the bread that was on the table and he broke it. He gave thanks for it and he broke it and he looked at them. So this is my body that is broken for you. And he grabbed the glass of wine and he looked at them and he looked at the wine and said, this is my blood is shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. So take and drink. And we do this on a regular basis to remember who Jesus is, what he's like, that he is God who took on human flesh to draw near to us, This is what we remember at Advent, right? That Jesus comes near to us. He takes on human form, slides into the pew next to us. He suffered, dies, 
and gives himself to us. And that is what we remember when we celebrate communion. We remember Jesus dying for us, living for us, and that Jesus will come again to be with us. And I guess I just invite us this morning as we move into celebrating communion together, and I'm going to invite you all at some point to stand up and you'll walk down the center aisle and we'll have people up here serving communion. And as you come up, they'll say to you, the body of Jesus broken for you. And you'll take a little piece of bread as a way of saying, Jesus, I receive you as the life of my life. And they'll say the blood of Jesus shed for you and you'll take that piece of bread and you'll dip it into the cup as a way of saying, Jesus, I receive your blood covers me that I may be forgiven. This is a way that we sort of recenter our hearts in the person of Jesus. Right? That not only did he come in the first century, but he comes into this place. And every time we celebrate communion, we declare that we can have communion with Jesus our risen Lord.